The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word VOTER to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's VOTER to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Andana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends and activism is a huge part of our lives and who we are. We're constantly inspired by the incredible work people are doing every day all over the world. And then one day we realized something. Most of these people had no intention of becoming heroes. They're just accidental activists who knew something was not okay and chose to do something about it. In this podcast, we share the journeys of 20 of these dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with the incredible Preet Bharara. Preet is the former federal prosecutor who served as the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. He was nominated by President Obama and unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. He oversaw the investigation and litigation of all criminal and civil cases and supervised an office of more than 200 assistant U.S. attorneys who handled cases involving terrorism, narcotics and arms trafficking, financial and healthcare fraud, cyber crimes, public corruption, gang violence, organized crime and civil rights violations. I mean, basically a superstar. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Preet is also the author of Doing Justice and the host of the podcast Stay Tuned. So in this episode, Mandana and I fangirl pretty hard. And even though it was quite embarrassing, we did manage to get Preet on tape, admitting we are now friends with him. So there's that. His Twitter bio literally reads, patriotic American and proud immigrant banned by Putin, fired by Trump. He is our real life superhero. And Mandana is not so low-key in love with him, and watching her lose her shit was quite entertaining. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, Preet Bharara, the guardian of justice. Okay, so, <laughs> Preet. Preet. <laughs> We're going to record a formal introduction at some point later. Yes. Um, Have you guys been drinking? Uh, no, you know what it is? It's we are so excited to talk to, oh. about to, to you. <laughs> we literally have been like giddy and like hyperventilating. Well, so that, you, now you made my day. <laughs> so Deborah, this all started as a joke where Deborah and I said like we should. There's so many people we want to talk to, and if we started a podcast, maybe they would speak to us. And you were <laughs> the list of the five people we thought we could con into having a conversation with us. So at some point, really, our sole agenda is to make you be friends with us. Yeah. But we can continue with this podcast <laughs> sham that we've created. I think, I think, this, I think this tiny <laughs> iPhone cross-country thing is a, is a good start. Okay, yeah, good. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Excellent start. Okay. I feel very close to you. Fantastic. We're starting off on, the, on, on, the, on a good, good note. Okay, we're going to just dive in. So we, really, we just 
want to know about you. So I uh, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and what it was like growing up? Sure. Well, I guess we'll begin with the beginning. I was born in India, so I'm an immigrant. Me too. Um, like like you are. I, I knew that about you. And so my father uh, and mother had me and my dad wanted to do the thing that a lot of people want to do, which is have a better life for their family. So my dad was uh, out of medical school and decided he wanted to come to the United States of America, which is the story of a lot of folks. Uh, he couldn't come directly to the United States. He came via uh, uh, the UK and then landed a job at a hospital. The first place we ever lived in the United States of America was <laughs> Buffalo, New York. And I only laugh because you know, the difference between northern India and outside of Delhi, where my mom is from, and Buffalo is pretty stark. Mm. First place my mom ever experienced snow in her. <laughs> wow. So it, was a, so it was a little bit cold. So now we're at, I'm age two. I, I, should, I should probably speed this along. <laughs> no, this is great. Then we, then, so from Buffalo, we went to um, the incredibly great state of New Jersey, the Garden State. My dad practiced medicine as a pediatrician uh, in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Oh, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, so I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, which I hope we'll spend 20 or 30 minutes on that. Okay, already. And uh, and I grew up with my brother, three years younger than me, in a town called Eatontown, New Jersey. At the time, you know, uh, sort of middle class, lower middle class, and tried to become American in the way that people try to become American. You know, there was, at the time, there was only one Indian restaurant in all of New Jersey, I believe. Wow. My dad and his best friend and my uncle opened up the second Indian restaurant in all of New Jersey. And now it's like you can't go a block without, without an Indian restaurant. I'll tell you a quick, a quick story about that. When I was five years old, these kids came up to me in, uh, I guess it's kindergarten, kindergarten or first grade. And they said, you know, what's your real name? <laughs> and I, I said, I told them my, my name as I understood it. And they said, no, 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 no. Like, my name is Joe. That's Bob. That's Ken. Oh, wow. That's Billy. What's your name like that? <laughs> oh my God. I have no idea. Yeah. It's been kept secret from me. So I'm like, what, what is my name like that? I'm thinking maybe it's, maybe it's Kenny. I mean, I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, maybe it's Will. So I went home. Definitely wasn't Grace. So I went <laughs> home and, and I asked my dad, so what, what's, my, what's my real name? He's like, what are you, and he's starting to get increasingly irritated. <laughs> And I said, what happened? And he told me, you know, your real name. And he, and he, you know, says, this is your name. And it's your family name. You should be proud of it. And, there, you know, it's an interesting thing. You don't remember a lot of things from when you were five. But it was a moment where I realized that, that there's such a thing as identity. Yeah. There's such a thing as, and I don't think these kids were being, I mean, later they got mean and it was intentional. But I think these kids were just curious. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, I don't know if you got this. In the same way that people would sometimes ask me. Later, I think it was intentionally mean and cruel um, and bullying. But early on. I would be asked, oh, you're Indian. Do you live in a teepee? Wow. And I I would say, yes. I I live in a four-bedroom teepee. It's very nice. (laughs) (laughs) I need the mall. Wow. That's awesome. All right. So now we're at five. Can we skip ahead? Sure. Totally. When did you know you wanted to work in law? And what was that process for you? So my dad, as I mentioned, is a doctor and hoped and prayed that one of his, one or both of his two sons would be doctors. Mm-hmm. I did pretty well in biology, not so well in chemistry, and definitely a disaster in physics. Not that you need physics for medicine, but my, I was not a science kid, nor was my brother. So that was kind of off the table. And then I, I read, you know, like a lot of kids do, you read 
idealistic young uh, people's work like To Kill a Mockingbird. And, and also I read the play Inherit the Wind uh, about the, the monkey trials in the South where you had someone you know, playing the famous defense lawyer Clarence Darrow. And something about, and there are other stories like that, something about those stories and the idea that you could stand up and argue about you know, the law or argue about things that are important and argue about ideas and present them in a way that's persuasive to other people and fight for people, mm. compelling to me. Um, and I also realize I have a somewhat argumentative nature. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like the sort of humanity. And I, I went to college and I studied, I studied government. And it just became more and more clear to me that the way to make, that I, that I thought that I had the skills to do something towards making a difference was not going to be, you know, science or engineering uh, or some other such thing, but it would be through getting a law degree. Can you tell us a bit about your time at the U.S. Department of Justice as assistant U.S. attorney, what, what it was like working as a federal prosecutor going after the Italian mafia and Al-Qaeda? Sure. I mean, it's hard to describe quickly. It's a job that I aspired to from the time I was back in law school. You know, a lot of people have these bad opinions of lawyers, some of which is deserved. Actually, maybe most of which is deserved. You know, we argue too much, <laughs> we, we charge too much, we talk too much, we fight too much. And lawyers, by and large, are required to make the most zealous argument that they can on behalf of a client, whether it's a criminal defendant or, you know, a company or, or anyone else. They're not required to make the most honorable argument. They're not required to make the most, you know, fact-filled argument, although they're not supposed to tell lies. But when you are a federal prosecutor or any kind of prosecutor, your loyalty is to your oath and your loyalty is to the public. And you are only supposed to make arguments that you think are the right ones, not just the best ones for some particular outcome. That's sort of the guiding principle in its ideal in a, in a place like that. And then for people also have, there's a myth I want to bust. People also have this view that people who are in prosecutor's offices, AUSAs or otherwise, are humorless, overly serious people. They're not. We're not. We have senses of humor. You have to have a sense of humor when you're dealing with the worst that humanity has to offer day by day. And then, you know, the excitement of going into court. I didn't want to be the kind of attorney who, you know, sat behind a desk and did deals. No offense to those people. And if that's what you like to do, then great. But I, I thought there was nothing more exhilarating than getting up in front of a jury and a judge to make your case. So, you know, when your job is every day to do the, as I say in my book, doing justice, do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons, you draw a certain, you know, amount of satisfaction from that. Even if the cases don't go the way you want them to go, even if you work too hard, it's a, it's a gratifying thing. And then you were appointed by Obama in 2009 and unanimously confirmed, which was pretty you casual. Am, that's which what is it pretty was. casual, man. Yeah. <laughs> between, I should spend in between because it may be relevant to depending on what you want to ask me about. In between, in between being an assistant U.S. attorney uh, from 2000 to 2005 and becoming the U.S. attorney itself in 2009, I worked on Capitol Hill in the Senate, on the Senate Judiciary Committee for four and a half years. Oh, wow. We're going to take a quick break from today's episode to hear from one of our brand partners, Rory. Meet Rory, a digital health clinic for women. Taking care of my skin is definitely a priority for me. Trying to find the right treatment can be so frustrating. Now there's a simpler, smarter solution to skincare. Rory is the sister brand of Roman. And like Roman, they make it simple to connect with a healthcare professional online from the comfort of your own home, where you can see if personalized prescription skincare treatment is right for you. It's so easy. 
Go on your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed healthcare professional within 24 hours. With Rory, you don't even have to go to the pharmacy. Your custom skincare is delivered right to you with free two-day shipping. You can also follow up with a healthcare professional anytime if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. They're with you every step of the way on your skincare journey. And with Rory, there are no commitments, and you can cancel at any time. Go to hellorory.com slash dissenters to try out Nightly Defense for just $5. It's free to chat with the doctor, and your first order is just $5. That's hellorory.com slash dissenters. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. And then you are now <laughs> prosecuting some of the scariest people in the world as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017, which are gang leaders, Russian arms dealers, and the members of Osama bin Laden's family. We were just going through this list. Can you walk us through what's, what your time doing that was like? So, you know, people like to talk about particular cases because that's the outward-facing yeah. thing that people see. Uh, whether it's insider trading cases we brought or violent crimes we prosecuted Mm -hmm. via or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab or all sorts of folks, and you can go on and on, cybercrime. And they'll sometimes ask me a version of your question, you know, what what thing are you most proud of? And they always want me to talk about a case. When I think about my time in the U.S. Attorney's Office in SDNY, which, by the way, has become a more famous and well-known place because it keeps prosecuting people who are connected to the President of the United States, (laughs) including Mm -hmm. his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. Yeah. So what I can tell you about that place is it's a storied institution where the culture is something unlike any other place I've ever been. My sense of the place when I started there as a you know, junior prosecutor 20 years ago, up to and including the time I was there and saw the people around me, it's full of people who want to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. That was the mantra that was taught to me. And it's just an institution where people thought we can make a difference in the world. We can make a difference in our community and in our district. And that's all they sought to do. And, and these are folks who gave up you know, a lot of ability to make money elsewhere, uh, in part because they wanted to learn to become trial lawyers, but mostly because they wanted to serve. And so there's a, there's a really strong feeling of service in all U.S. attorney's offices, but I think in that one in particular. And another thing that distinguishes it, and sometimes, you know, we got in trouble for this, we were known as the Sovereign District of New York. That was our nickname. Yeah, yeah. Being really, really independent. And so we brought cases wherever we thought it was appropriate to bring them. We didn't think we really had to answer to anyone other than our oaths and the constitution and to the constituents we served. Uh, and we were also pretty aggressive. And we brought, and you know, you were reading off a litany of some cases. We brought cases against people in, you know, dozens of countries around the world, had them extradited where that was appropriate and possible, or people when they otherwise traveled to the United States, we would arrest them. You know, you know people don't realize that, that big time crime, whether it's money laundering or cyber crime, or certainly uh, terrorism, the people who are planning those crimes and are, and are affecting and harming the United States of America, narcotics offenses as well, they're all over the world. It was, it's an exhilarating place, not just because we had really interesting, cool, impactful cases, but also because the people in the office and the people we worked with at the FBI, the Secret Service, the, the DEA, um, local mm-hmm. NYPD as well, were all, I think, dedicated to doing the right thing and holding people accountable. So it was a, it's a, it was a very exciting place, but also a very idealistic and uplifting place. 
I mean, you convicted more than a thousand of thirteen hundred people that you charged in fifty-two takedowns of street drug and trafficking organizations, and oversaw the largest criminal sweep of gangs and multi-state organized crime takedowns. I mean, there's so many other things we want to get through, but like, where did this courage and conviction and justice come from? And and were you terrified? And did you ever did you ever fear for your safety or your family's safety? I want to be careful. You're not giving me too much credit. You know, I, I was the guy at the top of the office for seven and a half years, people who did the work were, you know, line prosecutors and their supervisors and the agents uh, and the staff and everyone else who did the work every day. Whether and, and those are the folks, I think, who were brave, who decided to, you know, prosecute Al-Qaeda, prosecute families of uh, organized crime families in La Cosa Nostra. Uh, and, you know, we were just trained from the time that I was a, a junior prosecutor that if you do the right thing, everything falls into place. I, I don't know that that I'm deserving of, of any, you know, um, label of courage at all. Okay. Well, we think you're Superman. So let's go to your time at the Southern District of New York. You prosecuted, you know, nearly a hundred Wall Street execs for insider trading. The fourth, you know, the four largest banks in America shut down some of the most high profile hedge funds convicted both Republican and Democratic politicians for public corruption. You know, obviously this begins top down in leadership. Was it your intention to prove the nonpartisan nature of your office and that nobody is above the law? Or was that just like the underlying foundation for how you chose what cases to prosecute? And like maybe just anything about the obstacles that you faced doing this? Because it must have not made you always the most popular person. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. As I say often, you know, nobody we investigated or prosecuted ever sent us flowers and chocolates. (laughs) And they often accused us of all sorts of bad things, including of being political. You know, that's happening in recent days and weeks with Steve Bannon being charged. Anytime somebody has a platform and they're connected to politics in some way, they will say witch hunt. They will say fishing expedition. They will say political hit job. It's part of the playbook. And, you know, I hope it's the case. It was never the case in SDNY, but I hope it's the case that that's actually exceedingly rare if it, if it ever happens, but that's the playbook on the part of people who get investigated and get charged. People don't like that. So going back to your question as to how we thought about it, we, we didn't think about it in any overt way. We just thought, look, if there are facts and law that are combined with the interests of justice that mean you investigate or prosecute a particular person or entity, then you do it. It's a nice side benefit, I think, reputationally and for public faith in the work that you're doing, that the consequence of that is that you don't care about politics and that people have a sense that you're doing things for the right reasons. You know, we prosecuted when I was the United States attorney, many more Democrats than Republicans. That's in part because there are more Democrats (laughs) than Republicans in New York state. And there's no monopoly on corruption on either side of the aisle. You know, we could talk about way up in the executive branch. I think records are being broken on the part of associates and former staffers and employees of Donald Trump, but no no side has a monopoly on it. And the most important thing for people having faith is that prosecutors are seen in the Justice Department and anywhere are seen to be doing the right thing in the right way and only based on the law and the facts. You, I think there's a lot of curiosity by people like us about the how of your job. You know, you brought down terrorism. You you brought down mafia crime rings and Wall Street corruption. 
Can you just give us an example of one sort of crazy case and what were some of the tactics that you used that you think made your office so successful? <laughs> Boy, there are a lot of cases. Um, it's hard to it's hard to pick one. I, I talk about. I'll give you an example of one, please. That is maybe um, not a great one to think about if anyone is having a meal at the moment. And I talk about this one in my book too. We got wind of, of a person whose wife fled the home because she found chats, internet chats and searches on her husband's laptop that showed he was engaged in detailed discussion and planning with other people on these dark websites relating to the uh, kidnapping, torture, raping, murdering, and cannibalizing of women. Oh, yeah, I can. My God, <laughs> for those of you, those of you at home, I, I can see Deborah on the Zoom. Oh, and my she's God. fallen back in her couch, and and she's speechless. Yep, yep, um, yep. Uh, Mandana is, is totally like she's clearly familiar with this because she's not reacting um, weirdly <laughs> at all. You're like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Cannibal, sure, I know all about that stuff. So the bizarre thing about that case is. You know, th there are fetishists who go on these internet websites who talk about these things. And what made this case even more dramatic was the person, um, this gentleman by the name of Gilberto Valley, was an on-duty active NYPD officer <gasps> at the time. So he has a gun. Oh my! He's God. engaging in this in this con in this talk. And the question then becomes, because we have a First Amendment in this country, which protects fantasies even disgusting, gross, horrible fantasies. So the question is, in that case, was this a fantasy or did he take real actions and was it an actual conspiracy to do these terrible things? The prosecutors in my office argued very strenuously that it was in fact a conspiracy. He took certain actions. He did certain research. He, he staked out the places where some of these women were going to be. Uh, he looked up how to uh, make chloroform, which would be which would be the first you know step you would take in order to render someone unconscious. You, you were asking the question, what tactics do we use? We're, yeah. we're pretty aggressive in the use of undercover agents and wiretaps and all sorts of things, all of which we would have brought to bear on this, what the tabloids ended up calling this person the cannibal cop. And we didn't get the chance to use those tactics because all of a sudden, early in the investigation, this individual reported in to his superiors at NYPD that he was taking a vacation. Wow. And that's a problem because... Even though the FBI was pretty confident they could keep eyes on him, yeah, you've got a guy with a gun who knows that his wife has left him, who's not in good mental condition, who suddenly decides to take some time off, and who is engaged in very detailed conversation about, you know, raping, terrorizing, murdering, and eating people. What do you do? Do you sort of hope you hope you can keep your eyes on him and then introduce an undercover officer later and wiretap phones later, or do you take him off then? And so we decided to play it more safe and take them off then. So we have lots of tools that we can use. Sometimes you're not in a position because you don't control everything in the world to use those tools. At the end of the day, the jury convicted him. Thank God. The judge reserved judgment yeah. on, on, the, on the motion to set aside the verdict. And 18 months after the jury verdict, the judge actually wrote an opinion saying, which we didn't agree with, but you know, that's how things go sometimes, that it actually was fantasy. It actually was speech, no matter how disgusting. And he let him out. <gasps> and and so that defendant had his conviction overturned. And his position prevailed on appeal. 
And so he's written a book and he's out and about. And you don't know at this point whether or not he's eaten anybody. I'm, I'm completely unfamiliar with his dining habits. <laughs> oh my God. That's one. I mean, there's a hundred, there's, there's, there's a million cases. Like we, 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 became, we were the first office that I can think of, and this was not my innovation, but my predecessors in using wiretaps to try to ferret out insider trading. I mean, insider trading is in fact a crime of communication, right? Somebody right. is on the inside and calls someone on the outside and says, hey, guess what? Here's a secret about the company. And I don't know why it, there's so few cases where wiretaps were used, but that was an effective tool. We use, you know, sting operations, which are controversial, depending on the circumstances. Some people don't like them. We use cooperating witnesses, which I talk about a lot in, in the book I wrote, where, you know, people are now discussing that in connection with people who are arrested, who are in the circle of the president. Everyone all, mm-hmm. Now everyone understands to ask the question, are they going to flip? Are right. they going to flip? I think that was something that people understood before, but I think even more so in the recent couple of years. That's the first question people have. Some of the tactics, you know, are ethically uh, complex, depending on how you do it and what kind of corroboration you have. But, you know, our criminal justice system, whether people like it or not, and it, you know, definitely needs to be reformed in a lot of different ways, takes the position that, you know, you're kind of utilitarian. You you try to do things in, in the interest of the public and in public safety that are, you know, in other circumstances you might think are kind of queasy. You know, we give people a break, even if they've killed folks, to come in and help us get their their bosses, you right. know, like in the mafia uh, or in other organized gangs. There's a real question, there's a real moral question as to whether or not that's the right and good thing to do. But, you know, we've made the decision that we want to save as many lives as possible. And so that's how we go about using some of these tools. So cool. Henry does not like this response. <laughs> Deborah's dog is not very happy yes. right now. So here you are completely uh, embracing your independence <laughs> as an entity in New York and a fabled and very important organization. And then Trump becomes president and you find out that you are going to be asked to stay. And so Trump asks, yes, he asks you, you say yes, and you go about your business. But maybe let's hear about like that first meeting. Because I'm <laughs> dying to hear about this. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so I, I, I hear from my former boss on the Judiciary Committee, which is why I mentioned it. Senator Schumer says that the president-elect had called him uh, eight days after the election. I think to congratulate him on, on becoming the leader uh, of the Democrats. He was elected then. And then that same phone call, President-elect Trump said, you know, what do you think about that Preet guy? I don't know if that's a phrase he used, but he certainly couldn't pronounce my last name, I'm sure. And Senator Schumer says, why? And Trump says, you know, I think he's he's terrific. I'd, I'd want him to stay, which is very unusual because when a president of another party takes office, usually everyone over an orderly period of time, you know, with proper uh, transition, they leave. And I expected to leave. I planned a, you know, an expensive vacation with my family because after 17 years in public service, I thought I would be entering the private sector and have you know maybe a couple of dollars in my pocket for a change. And I was kind of flummoxed by that, thought about it, went home, consulted with my family, thought about it for a day uh, and decided that I would, but I was asked to go meet personally with the president-elect first. So the Wednesday after Thanksgiving, that fall in 2016, I went to Trump Tower, traveled, uh, over there with one of my investigators. And I actually remember at the time during the transition, there were a lot of reporters in the lobby of Trump Tower. 
and they were kind of pinned behind a velvet rope. Uh, some some folks noticed mm -hmm. that it was me coming to meet with the president-elect. It seems kind of odd. Uh, I remember pressing the up button on the elevator in the lobby, and while I was waiting for the elevator to come, some reporter literally yells out at me, Mr. Barrara, are you here to serve a subpoena? <laughs> oh, you one day. That's pretty prescient. Maybe one day. Uh, so then mm -hmm. I went up the, the elevator, and the, the president-elect was running late because he was, for a change, getting, I think, his national security briefing. And so I was <laughs> then entertained for a few minutes by uh, people who you may uh, have heard of, Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner. Uh-huh. Steve Bannon was wearing only one shirt uh, at that time. Really? <laughs> he has this thing, he wears the two shirts. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I didn't know that, that that it was ever different. Yeah, I think he lets I think he lets tear down inside Trump Tower. Did you know Bannon or Kushner or any of these guys before? Oh, I knew. I you know, I had met Jared Kushner a couple of times. But then the president elect comes in the room and he's perfectly cordial and nice and flattering and basically asked me to stay and I agreed to do so because he didn't say anything crazy in the meeting. Which is shocking. Did you go into this meeting like I should take a tape recorder and, and protect myself? I guess we're getting it. So the one thing that was weird that happened in the meeting with the president-elect was that he asked me for my phone numbers. He pushed a yellow post-it pad across the desk. And I'm like, it's kind of odd because someone must have my phone number because here I am at the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Did, like he asked you for Supported your digits? Somehow by electronic device. Just like, hey, I want your phone number. It'd be great to keep in touch. It's like, give me your digits. Maybe like, no, I mean, he didn't really say why. I'm like, this, I think I joked with my my team later. Like, what's going to call up and be like, hey, Pri, what's going on? What are you wearing? I mean, I don't know. Okay, so just to put this in perspective, how many times did President Obama call you during his time in office? Zero times. Okay. Thank and you. why is that separation <laughs> important? Three times. So he called me, he called me once in December, still during the transition. I returned the call after consultation with my team and letting the head of transition of the uh, Trump's head of transition know about it. Oh, it seemed very weird. He called me again a second time, two days before the inauguration, when at a time when you would think he would be busy mm -hmm. <laughs> doing things like, I don't know. But he calls you to say what? I don't understand. In those two phone calls, he never said anything inappropriate. He called to shoot the breeze, you know, ask me how I'm doing. Did you talk to Jeff Sessions to tell me a little bit about what he's doing? Um, in the second call right before the inauguration, I said, you know, how are you doing, sir? And he said, well, you know, I'm very busy. A lot of people are coming to see me. A lot of governors are coming to see me. A lot of senators, you know, all these people are coming to see me. They all want, you know, me to help them in some way, which I thought was odd. Mm. Not inappropriately, it just, it's a window into how here he is about to be the leader of the free world, talking to somebody, you know, who yeah has subpoena power, but he's like the local U.S. attorney trying to impress me with how yeah. much power he's yeah. about to have. Like, you know what? I I got that in civics. I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be POTUS, right? Like, <laughs> that's a big deal. You don't have to, you don't have to prove it to me. Uh, and so that was all, I thought that would then discontinue when he became the president because presumably he would be <laughs> busy doing president stuff. Executive time. I didn't Prior know that to executive knowing time. executive time. Got it. Okay. We didn't know this. Clearly time. he has executive time and he gets on the phone and so he called me the second week of March, March 9th, and that then started, you know, some kind of chain of events, I think, that led to my departure, although I can't be sure. The secretary of the White House left a message saying the president of the United States would like you to return the call. That I thought was weird and peculiar and maybe not appropriate, although I didn't know what he wanted to talk about. But at that point, there's an entire Justice Department. Right. There's an attorney general. There's a deputy attorney general. There are channels you go through. Our office had been asked by various entities 
to maybe investigate the president with respect to some things, including the emoluments clause. It is not worth nothing that the SDNY office has clear jurisdiction if there are crimes committed um, over investigating the president's foundation, mm-hmm. the president's uh, companies and all properties and all sorts of other things. It was weird. Why yeah. would the president of the United States be? And I don't know him. I have no personal relationship with him. And so to make a long story short, we thought no good could come of that call. Either it would be innocuous and people would wonder, what did you talk about? Right. Same way that people wondered about Loretta Lynch. Exactly. Former general meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac. Right. Or which he might Trump, say something. Which Trump said was horrible. And right? then what am I going to do? Yeah. Am I going to report him? Am I going to have a news conference? We did think very briefly, briefly, it caused a firestorm when I mentioned it the first time, as you mentioned before, Deborah, of recording the president because you don't know what he's going to say, because you have this inkling, you know, you get a sense of people. Yeah. Uh, some people you don't want to speak to unless you're recording it. Although maybe I think I should be insulted because maybe you think that of me because this is our first conversation. <laughs> you're recording it, but hopefully that's for entertainment purposes and not because you think I'm a lying SOB. But that's-, that's No, really, thing. there's no podcast. This is We just rented <laughs> studio because we have so many questions for you about impeachment. Like, okay. But, but we'll- <laughs> But the, but the weird thing is, you know, this is back in March of 2017. And that's before I knew that basically everybody recorded the president. Mm-hmm. Michael Cohen had recordings of the president. Yeah. Omarosa had recordings yes. of the president. So uh, Jim Comey took, you know, copious notes immediately after he met with the president. So I'm not alone in thinking, you know what, if you have a conversation with this person, you might want to have some proof of what was said. Yeah. thought so, like none of those scenarios was a good one. None of those scenarios was good for me. And, and even more importantly, none of those scenarios was good for the president. Yeah. How is it going to look in the midst of all sorts of investigations that might be asked for and maybe swirling around that there was some private side conversation between Donald Trump and Preet Bharara when you would ordinarily go through proper channels? No one's going to believe that that was innocent. Right. And then also over time, if I had taken the call, I can tell you what I think now, and sort of become, become his buddy. Yeah. Who, every few weeks, like me and some guy at the National Weather Service, it was going to be odd. And at some point, he might think it's okay to ask me to do yes. something inappropriate or reveal something to him that was inappropriate. And you, you realize you know, his view of his power far exceeds what I think a normal person and rational person should think his power is. I mean, as we know now, he thinks it's perfectly okay to tell people who are in his Justice Department to investigate and prosecute his political enemies. He also thinks it's okay to do that if you're the president of a foreign country, hypothetically, Ukraine. Right. So this is before I knew any of that, but but I think I think one of the wisest things I ever did, even though it may have cost me my job because I was asked to leave the next day, was not returning that call. We kind of skipped over your work in all of SDNY, prosecuting, you know, 100 Wall Street executives, banks, hedge funds. Do you, you know, you were on the cover of a magazine as, as the guy who's going to bring down Wall Street corruption. But do you think that he wanted, it was one of those keep your enemies closer? Like mm-hmm. he thought that if you guys were friends and you had a shorthand that you wouldn't go after him for the corruption that he's most likely committed? He was ingratiating himself. My sense is from my own experience and now having you know, watched him as a private citizen for three years, you know, pretty closely, that he's a person who cultivates people. Mm-hmm in a position to help him or who might be in a position to do the opposite of help him. Yeah. I'm close. I, I really have no doubt now, I can't prove it, that if I had allowed myself to be cultivated over a period of time, that there would have come an occasion where 
he'd say, you know, what's going on with your investigation of this person or that person? Right. Because that's how he is. I mean, he, he's crossed line after, look, he asked Jim Comey, and I believe the testimony, he asked Jim Comey for a personal loyalty pledge. He kept asking, you know, publicly and also, I think, through intermediaries, Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself. Right. Um, he also seems to have told Jim Comey, could you just let, you know, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, could you just let it go? He's a person who uses the folks who are in his own department and also otherwise who he has, over whom he has leverage, either as the commander in chief in the country or as a, the head of a powerful country who has leverage over another country like Ukraine. He bends them to his own devices. So you decline the phone call. Basically, you say no to the president. And then what happens? Uh, then I think 20 or 22 hours later, I got a phone call asking for my resignation. From who? The acting deputy attorney general, Dana Bente, who said he was calling because he was told that every Obama holdover was being asked for their resignation. And I remember saying, well, are you sure? Because <laughs> <laughs> I was there, you know, Jack was there. Like there was a whole discussion about my staying. <laughs> and he said he didn't know. And then I didn't, I didn't resign for a while because I wanted to make sure I wasn't, it'd be very embarrassing given that I had this sort of, spe- I mean, I was the only person that I'm aware of who the president asked to stay and not only asked to stay, but asked to stay personally within days of winning the election during the transition. So, you know, I was surprised by that. I yeah. was, I was um, flattered by that, but I'm the only person with whom that happened. And then all of a sudden there's this sort of blanket call yeah. to get rid of the Obama U.S. attorneys. I think it's not a crazy diva thing to think. Maybe that doesn't apply to me. And it would be, I thought it'd be very embarrassing to me and my family and my children. Like, why'd you leave the job? Well, well, I resigned accidentally. Right, right. I didn't want to inadvertently leave the job if I wasn't really being asked to resign. And then the press would call the Department of Justice, you know, and say, what's going on with me? And they would say, call the White House. They would call the White House. The White House would call the Justice Department. And so I decided for the rest of the day, if the president wants me gone, I should understand that this is, I didn't need to hear from him directly, but I needed to get the message that the person who asked me to stay shook my hand and asked me to stay. I never asked to stay. I mean, I know he likes to say about everybody to whom he's ever given an appointment that they beg for their job like a dog. Right. I assure you I did not. I assure you I did not have any <laughs> that I would keep the job. He made the overture to Senator Schumer. He asked me to come to his right. office. He asked me to stay. He shook my hand and said, I'm so pleased that you're staying. And if that was all so, I didn't know what circumstances had changed. And I would just like it to be clear for the record and for posterity. Mm-hmm. The guy who asked me to stay was the guy who was asking me to leave. And that took like 24 or 30 hours. And so they fired you. And so then on Saturday, I kept, I ordered lunch. I went to the office. I'm like, I'm supposed to be fired by now, but I wasn't. Hours went on. My, my daughter texted me. She's like, daddy, why do I keep getting New York Times email alerts about you? What, 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 what are you doing? I said, I'm kind of like waiting to be fired. And so finally I got the call. I said, yeah, you know, this is directly from the president. Your services are no longer needed. And then I left. And then here we are. Now I have new friends like you. Yay! <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw when Trump went on on some rants about Deborah on Twitter and started attacking her and trying to— How did that feel? Can I ask you—so I'm a podcast host, too. How did that feel? Oh, uh, it, it, it felt incredibly surreal, you know, because I, I'm just one of hundreds of voices that are, you know— resisting the destruction of our democracy. And so, you know, the fact that he he pointed me out was was very confusing and kind of funny. It didn't scare me. It just seemed absurd. Did, did you have a book at the time? Because that no. helps, helps book sales when he does that. No. 
<laughs> no, no, Great. no. I, I, I have never written a book, but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's going to help us sell your book. Uh, <laughs> there was this quote that you said that Deborah and I were talking about before we jumped on the phone about how you used to have great confidence that the government would protect you. And now it says, I don't know that the government at its highest level thinks of Americans first. It's whether you are on his side or not on his side. So, so that is a function of not that in the United States, someone's going to do me harm or my government is going to do me harm. That's a reference to some other diciness that I have gotten into because of some of the prosecutions we bring up. I'm banned from Russia. Right. Yes. By the way, how cool is that? Does that that's does cool. that make you really happy? Really way. You know, my my Twitter bio, I think says, a "Proud American, uh, patriotic American, proud immigrant, uh, banned by Putin, fired by Trump." That pretty much. <laughs> oh my God! That's really baller. That's an this amazing. This is why we want to be friends with that you. That should be on your tombstone. I, actually, right? I have a T-shirt that says, "Banned by Putin, fired by Trump." <gasps> oh my God! That's brilliant. But among other things. I got in trouble. I got on the wrong side of President Erdogan of Turkey because we brought a case against someone <laughs> uh, that he caused not to be prosecuted in Turkey. This guy named Reza Zarab. It became a whole big deal. What did you learn about justice from your time in SDNY? You're so, and in your book, actually, you're so optimistic about the rule of law. And yeah, I'm less optimistic than I was, but I'm still. But you do, you have this like love yeah. affair, like the way you speak about it is like poetic. And I, I guess it would also just be helpful as you as you answer that, since we have limited time, I'm just going to consolidate 18 questions into one. Good. What does it mean to do justice? The answer is 42. Um, <laughs> the, since you consolidated. So that's a complicated question. And millennia of of scholars and philosophers have pondered that question. So far be it for me to define it. I don't attempt to define it. What I do say is, you know, for people to think about an outcome as being fair and just, they need to believe a number of things, two of which are these. They need to believe that the process, the structure, you know, the rules are fair. Mm -hmm. But that's, and that's what we focus on largely in discussions and in academic articles and in reform discussions. That's only part of it. So not only must the rules and, and laws be fair, but the people who are responsible for interpreting them and enforcing them and using them, they need to be fair-minded. And if you have a gap in either one of those things, not only will you not get justice, you will not have people believe that justice is even gettable, right? And mm. sometimes it's the case that the right thing to do is very easy. And, and mm -hmm. people say, well, just do the right thing. And often that's, that's clear, right? You know, you have the option of turning over evidence that you're supposed to or not. Turn over the evidence, right? That's a very clear question. You have yeah. the option of, uh, you know, bringing to, to court material that shows that someone is innocent. You, you do that, whether it's your legal responsibility or not, whether you find out about it in another office or not. Those are sort of easy, easy moral questions. Tougher questions are the ones like the one I mentioned earlier, where everyone ha is, has the same goal which is to prevent harm to the public with respect to the, you know, quote unquote, cannibal cop. But what's the right, what is, what is justice in that moment? Is justice in that moment letting him stay out there and hoping that you can develop more evidence so that you can hold that person accountable clearly with overwhelming evidence or, but, but meanwhile, taking the risk that maybe something bad will happen or do you take the person off then risking as we ended up doing in the case, not having as much evidence. Yeah. So 
you know, justice requires open-mindedness. It requires, I think most importantly, always thinking maybe you're wrong, not being too arrogant and confident in your decisions and in your observations. Um, you know, th- there's a thing that lots of psychologists talk about, and we need to talk about it more in prosecutions also, right? C- confirmation bias. I tell stories of cases where, you know, when people decide that they think they know what happened because of c- certain bits of evidence, you know, science tells us, psych- psychology tells us, and common sense also tells us that it's very hard to then undo that view, even if new evidence comes to light. And you know, that happens in businesses, that happens in universities, that happens in all sorts of places. It's a particularly bad thing if that happens in a prosecutor's office or with respect to any prosecution team, because bad things can happen. And I give a bunch of examples of that. So, you know, justice requires patience, it requires rigor, it requires attention to detail. Last point I'll make on it. Movies and books and sensational stories teach us to always worry about, you know, the corrupt cop uh, or yeah. the... the, the the horribly incompetent detective or prosecutor, and in particular, the malicious one, right? Who's who's trying to screw the innocent person. Mm-hmm. And those are terrible, but that's not the lion's share of where bad things happen. Bad things happen, and I give several examples of this, when reasonably good people don't do their best work, right? Where the first fingerprint examiner is a little off the mark, and the second fingerprint examiner, I have a case that encapsulates this, the second fingerprint examiner, you know, is biased by the, the first fingerprint examiner's confirmation of the fingerprint, and then they don't do the right job either. Mm. And then a bunch of people mm. deviate from best practices a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the combination of a lot of people not doing their job right causes, you know, really terrible miscarriages of justice to happen. So sometimes it's intentional and malicious, and you can blame a particular person. Sometimes it's an overall system. And, you know, you see that with, with all sorts of things particularly when there's corruption involved. You don't have good incentives. You don't have good leadership. You don't have good screening of people. It happens in prisons. It happens in jails. It happens in universities. So you got to take care of all of that. Which kind of brings us to your book. (laughs) Like a perfect segue, Doing Justice. Why did you write this book and not a tell-all after your experience? So that's a good question. Um, Other people, you know, uh, have that maybe penchant, inclination, mm-hmm. style. You know, I have a lot of things that I know that I could have written about. What ma- was always mattered to me are fundamental principles, right? And I had had this idea when I was in office as a U.S. attorney to write something like sort of an internal sort of guidebook, not about cases, not about the law, but sort of, you know, principles of leadership, principles of moral reasoning, decision-making, you know, how to ask good questions, things that are actually, as I realized once after I got fired and I had more time, I realized when publishers began to contact me, that this is the book that was really in my head and in my heart, a book about those things. You know, what is right? What is truth? How do you find it? What is fairness? What is justice? And then as I began to think about it more, I realized this is important for your listeners. Uh, It's not really a book for lawyers. I mean, lawyers will enjoy it. And I talk about cases, but it's like when a business person writes about their company, it's a book about leadership told through what the experience of that that person are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a chapter on you know, that talks about fairness in connection with judging. Yeah. Uh, chapter called Judges. So maybe lawyers will appreciate it and how to make a good argument. But as I make clear in the book, and I, and I do otherwise, you know, everyone has been a judge and has been judged. If you've been a parent, if you've been in a competitive sport, um, if you've run for something, student council or anything else, if you've had, uh, if you ever challenged a parking ticket, you know, every day in life, 
there's circumstances in which, you know, if you've ever gone to HR, there is judgment, there is judging going on. And so all these concepts of fairness and justice and truth are important. So I want to write about that. No, and as I say in the introduction to the book, you know, sometimes the best way to deal with and approach and address current controversies is to go back to first principles. And I think we, we sometimes in the age of Trump, if you make everything about Trump, it turns some people away and they stop listening to you. Mm-hmm. But if you talk in, in terms of fundamental principles of, you know, here's how you make an argument that has integrity and where you listen to and engage the other side and you don't say, and this is why Trump is terrible, people are more likely to hear what you're saying. And they're more likely to say, well, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. I see Trump to the opposite. They're in a better position to judge that conduct because you haven't immediately you know, done that thing that everyone seems to do, mention Trump. Yeah, you barely mentioned him in your book. That's correct. I might have sold more if I mentioned him more. <laughs> <laughs> You've been extraordinary uh, for giving Thank us you. this time. Yes, absolutely. I just wanted to um, give you the opportunity, if you want, to share if if there ever was a, a personal experience of injustice that that led you down this path, or whether or not it was just this inherent love of the law that um, just naturally led led you on this path. Yeah, I, there, there was not some particular in, injustice that drove me this way. I just in growing up and in reading Inherit the Wind and in thinking about what I wanted to do and what I cared about and the fact that I'm, you know, I like to argue uh, and convince people to my, in a good way, in a good way, in a positive way, and convince people to my point of view and advocating. I like being an advocate. I mean, I do that too, and I'm a lawyer too, but I mean, the extent that you have committed your life to this is is so remarkable. And, and it's like, it's it's always so fascinating to us, like what drives that? Well, you know, it's not all, it's not all so noble. I mean, I, I like to think it's a noble profession and it's a noble pursuit, but it's also really, really fun. And some people, <laughs> some people will not like that, right? Yeah. But it matters, right? So I, I, I was in private practice doing corporate law work for six years. And that's fine. And I'm a professional. And I like to do a good job. And some people can do their best work no matter what they're given, right? I'm sure this is true in the entertainment industry too, right? You, you're given a an amazing script, you will do amazingly. But if you're a real professional, you're given a mediocre script, you, you still do the best you can with that. I'm not, I'm not good that way. <laughs> I'm not as professional as that. If, if I'm given mm-hmm. mediocre work that's not meaningful, I'll do like a B plus job, maybe. Or at least I, that was the case when I was younger. Yeah. I, I need to be fully invested in the meaning of the work to do the best that I can. And I felt that way when I started doing criminal. And this is, by the way, the same thing applies to people on the criminal defense side. You talk to people, you know, it's the same DNA in part, not 100%, but very similar, that the work they do has meaning. Right. It has meaning to the particular person they're defending and they're trying to get the best possible result for, whether they're innocent or not as guilty quite possibly as the prosecutors think they are. And you're having an effect on real people's lives, who you meet and see in flesh and blood and you can take care of their suffering. We feel that on the side of victims, uh, on the prosecution side. It never really... This is going to hurt me in the future when I get my resume out there one day, hopefully many oh years hence. But There's zero chance of that happening. The idea that company A sues company B, I could give a shit which company won. In you know, but I, obviously I represented my client when I was in private practice as a younger person. But that didn't give me a lot of drive. Mm-hmm. What, what, what gives me drive is for the thing to be important, and that doesn't mean the thing has to be on the front page of the paper. You know, I I, didn't, I never had any high profile case when I was a an assistant U.S. attorney, line attorney. 
but the cases had meaning and importance to the robbery victim right. and to the company that may have uh, you know gone under, but for being able to get compensation from a fraud or you know you name it, it mattered to those people a lot. It was the most for, for most people, you know that was the most important thing that happened in their life, even if the New York Times never wrote about it. And that's that's a thrilling and exhilarating thing to be a part of. While I have you, do you think Bannon is going to flip? So Steve Bannon, who's charged with very serious crimes, conspiracy to commit money laundering and wire fraud, and it seems to be a really strong case. Yeah. I don't, I don't always say that. This seems to be pretty strong because what the fraud is very simple to understand. Sometimes they're complicated and you have you know, accounting principles and you have to bring in expert witnesses to explain why they did an accounting this way and how they managed to sort of take into account certain assets and do they depreciate. You know, it gets very complicated and boring and your eyes glaze over. This one's really easy. And it bears on your question, right? Yeah. Because the strength of the evidence and the likelihood of conviction bears on the decision of someone like Steve Bannon to flip or not flip. And here, what's the crime? The crime is that Steve Bannon and his co-defendants said over and over and over again, with respect to this charity that's going to try to build a wall at the, at the southern border, we're not going to take one penny for ourselves. No one's going to take any salary. Every single penny, over and over and over again, they said, is going to go towards building the wall. And the prosecutors in SDNY clearly seem to have evidence documentary evidence that's hard to disprove, they did take money. Steve Bannon took a million bucks. The lead defendant seems to have taken a $100,000 payment and a $20,000 monthly salary. So if you're looking at a really strong case with overwhelming evidence and the likelihood of prevailing at trial is low, you know, that increases your, you know, your commitment to wanting to flip. He also, he's not a young man. He's in his late 60s, I believe, which is young relatively, but it's not a good age to go to prison. Right. And it also depends on what information he has. Does he have information about people that the prosecutors care about, whether it's associates of Trump or people in business, because he's been in a lot of businesses, or the president himself? You know, we've gone into the speculation on other occasions, like with Roger Stone and Michael Cohen. Mm-hmm. Roger Stone kept his mouth shut and seems to have been rewarded by having his sentence commuted. Michael Cohen did not keep his mouth shut, but seems to have otherwise been so problematic <laughs> and difficult that he was not really enlisted formally as a cooperator. So. This is an individualized decision. Bannon, I don't know the psychology of Steve Bannon, thankfully, well enough to know, but I think it's a real possibility, yeah. That would be so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote something that really moved both of us, and um, we would like to share that before you leave. The law is an amazing tool, but it has limits. Good people, on the other hand, don't have limits. The law is not in the business of forgiveness or redemption. The law cannot compel us to love each other or respect each other. It cannot cancel hate or conquer evil, teach grace or extinguish passions. The law cannot achieve these things, not by itself. It takes people, brave and strong and extraordinary people. How do we become these people? Well, so so thanks for reciting that. Um, That's basically the central thesis of my book and how I would talk about justice and fairness when I was in office and since I've been out of office. It is a great thing to talk about laws and institutions and statutes, and we should try to draft perfect constitutions and all of that. None of that matters unless the people who are responsible for these things, as I say in that passage, essentially, are good people. You can design a fair process, but if the people who are involved in the process are not fair-minded, you're not going to get justice, you're going to get injustice. And so I, I don't have a, a quick and easy answer for you. Okay. It's like the other hard questions you asked me about the media and the truth and everything else. But, but you can begin to at least recognize 
that it is not enough to pass a good law. You have to make sure that the people who are prosecutors, people who are lawmakers, the people who are judges do the right thing. All this destruction of norms and this undermining of the rule of law that, that I think the three of us at least are like-minded in this view and, and believe in is interesting because the constitution has not changed. Yeah. It's time. Um, virtually no law has changed that's relevant to this question. No regulations have changed really, except for a couple of things, one of which we talked about. What's changed is the people, yeah. the people who are at the helm. And if you don't have good people, you're not going to get justice. You're not going to get fairness. You're not going to get faith in justice and fairness. So I think we all need to be involved in making sure we're putting good people in office, both in elective office and also in appointed office. You hold their feet to the fire. And we teach people as they grow up to think about principle and to think about ethics and to think about you know, all those ways in which they can do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. That's a softer and more difficult sermon to give than, hey, you know what? We should just eliminate these kinds of penalties yeah, yeah. or we should change the law with respect to mandatory minimums and all of that, all of which have a part in achieving justice. But as I also quote in the book from Clarence Darrow, who, who was a you know, famous criminal defense lawyer, who I've mentioned twice now, yeah, when he would defend people on death row, you know, even though we had the Emancipation Proclamation, he was, you know, the, the law has set, he would talk about African-Americans, the law has set him free, but man has not. And he said, in the last analysis is, mm. what has man done, not what has the law done? And I think we just don't think about that enough. People matter, not just the law. Well, we are grateful that you are a good person and mm -hmm. has been uh, such a fierce champion of uh, good people and trying to elevate those people and, and hold people accountable who are intending to hurt us all. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Okay, one last thing. And it's not a real question. You can answer it in one sentence. But just like any advice you have for anyone who feels like they're on the sidelines, but is really passionate and wants to do more. Vote. Anything that, vote. any great advice. Vote, <laughs> vote, vote. Look, the way I think about this, at least in the, in, in the immediate term, and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but it's, um, we're not that- Thursday. Okay. We're not that far from the election. <laughs> there are issues that people care about and everyone cares about different issues with different priorities and with different emphasis. But to me, if you're on the sort of the progressive side of the world, whether you care about criminal justice reform or the environment or pay equity or reproductive rights, or you name the thing you care about, mm -hmm. in the immediate term, the, th the most important thing that will help you with whatever, or, or talking, you know, guns, gun safety, whatever of those things you care about the most, the biggest impact on the success of what you believe in will be who wins the presidential election. And so people shouldn't abandon those causes yeah. in the next 70 something days. But I would suggest they take a pause from time and energy on those things because all of the causes you believe in on, on this side will be advanced mightily if we elect a new president and they will be dramatically held back no matter how good an advocate you are if Trump is reelected. So that's an easier answer than I would give in normal times. <laughs> but no, it's I mean, this is why I quit my job to push that one singular message. I literally sat down one day and was drawing diagrams of the things that I cared about. And every single issue pointed to the same message, which was vote. And I was it wasn't like I was raised to love voting. I was like, oh, OK, that's the message. Yeah. Got it. That's what we're going to focus my on. My daughter is 19 and she was looking for internships. This summer because there's at least for her there's no college anymore it's all like live with mom and dad and do it remote 
and you know she's not even working on any particular you know campaign in the fall she's working on you know projects to help register voters to get more people out there and um you know I'm proud of her for that but you know she she has a lot of things she cares about but the most important thing right now is sort of the general idea of get get people out to vote for the right folks yeah. at the presidential level and in the Senate and the House. Yeah. And then and then worry get get those legislators and leaders in place and then go back to whatever cause you care about, whether it's guns or the environment or wildlife or wh- whatever it is, you're going to have a much more sympathetic ear in the legislature and in the executive branch if you get more receptive people into those offices. So, so vote vote should, should i say it again register to vote vote you got you know we have this problem with with mail-in voting yeah and you have a postmaster general i don't know what the hell to make of yeah so figure out what the deal is in your state figure out the best way to make your vote count if you're voting by mail get that ballot immediately as soon as it's available send it in immediately you don't have much to think about it's a stark choice yeah. choose the right guy at the presidential level at least uh and, and get the and get the vote in Will you thank your daughter for us? I will. Yeah. Also, can she help us? <laughs> <laughs> She's a little busy. She's a little busy. She's a little spoken Fine. for. Oh, Fine. Preet, you are just extraordinary. Thank you so much. Well, thanks thanks you for having me again. incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah. Well, um, we really, we wrote down that you're like our modern superhero. So yes. <laughs> this is so fun. And we're very excited about your book. And uh, see, we have everything in common. Do we definitely? This do. was a pretty hard sell. <laughs> I'm just not gonna lie, we're not very casual about this. Like we should have probably played this a little cooler, Deborah. <laughs> All right, guys. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For Bye. Doing Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in, and please join us next week as we speak with my amazing friend Christian Siriano, the inclusion pioneer. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani, and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.